Well, for tonight, um, I really wanted to actually kind of go back to um, this morning's message, first of all. Um, was there anything from this morning's message that uh, maybe you hadn't heard before? Um, and, and, I mean, that's a pretty common account, Matthew chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 12. Um, and, uh, and certainly, um, it was one of my shorter messages because we had the children's program ahead of time. So there were actually a lot of details um, that I had left out and just wanted to kind of keep to the main points. But there are a lot of... Um, discussions and debates that uh, surround that passage. Um, is there anything from that passage that uh, may have surprised you from this morning, what we talked about, um, what was uh, preached? Um, anything that stands out to you guys? Yes? Even in the song that we sang, it talked about the three kings, you know? Yeah. And I, I thought that was, uh, I never really thought about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, the, the Magi, that's um, one of the, uh, one of the one of the first major discussions in terms of well, who are these magi? Um, because when you look back at um, the Old Testament, um, magicians and sorcerers, diviners, um, they're they're not spoken of well. Um, th- those are considered an abomination um, by Old Testament law. So um, for it, it's strange that we would hear of magi coming from the east um, in, in this way. But as I mentioned, that that word um, over the course of a hundred hundreds of years. Had, um, had really taken on different meaning by the time they had come. They were really kind of the wise men of their age. Yes, Jerry? Weren't they noted as kingmakers? What was the... They had to, like, give them a stamp of approval over a king or something like that? Yeah, so, so there, there, is, um, there is some people that um, say that these were kingmakers, um, that they, they were basically traveling around and, and coronating kings, um, in, in a sense. And, um, and that could be. I haven't seen... You know, there, there's a lot of... Um, you know, there's a lot of extra biblical documentation in history books that you'd have to kind of read through. Um, I, I don't see um, concrete proof that we would consider them necessarily king ma- makers. Um, we, we, you know, magi at that time, they were wise men. They, they dabbled in astrology um, in, in other fields. And so, you know, the fact that they saw a great star, I mean, kind of shows a little bit of their, you know, their, their tendencies uh, and studies with, with regards to astrology. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, Matthew just presents them as magi, um, so that's that's really as far as I, I can go. I mean, I, well, I just wonder why they came. Why, yeah. Why do you think they came? Oh well, they they came to worship. I mean, that's that's exactly what they you know when they came to Jerusalem. I mean, they were looking around saying, "Where is the child that was born King of the Jews?" And and I think they um, what they said was was exactly the reason why they came. They came to worship. Um, yeah. I've always um, tended to believe that. Um, these were um, uh, descendants of yeah. the men that Daniel influenced when he right. was given his um, 70 weeks of years yeah. prophecies. Yeah. And uh, it's very clear from that prophecy yeah. that uh, uh, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, was about to be born. All you had to do was just calculate out the, right. uh, the years using right. the Jewish 360 day right. year. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I, I think these men were looking for a sign. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Jewish word for, for sign and the word for star, I have been told, are the same. Um, hmm. I'd have to, have to look back at that. that, yeah. that that's, I was told that yeah. by a, a, a Jewish Christian man yeah. who, uh, who was a teacher. And hmm. uh, I found that very interesting. But they were looking at the heavens uh, for this sign. That, yeah. Um, 
They knew it had to be close. Yeah, the the connection to Daniel. So, I mean, um, there's a lot of people that talk about this connection to Daniel. And um, I I think it's, um, I I think there's compelling reason to believe that. Because first, they came from the east. That's where, that's the direction of Persia. And uh, obviously, Daniel, um, Daniel was the prophet uh, that was was started in Babylon. And he was there during the Persian and, and Median empires. Um, and, uh, and we know that uh, he, he kind of lived through multiple kings and, and trained up multiple people. And, and for these folks to come right at this time, looking specifically for the one who was born king of the Jews, you know, after over 400 years of prophetic silence, um, would, uh, would strongly suggest that they knew the timing in which the Messiah would come. Now, it's also possible that they had received a direct revelation somehow. Um, that's possible, too. So, so those, those kinds of things, those are kind of... Um, inferences that we're drawing that that this probably has something to do with Daniel because they had some awareness um, of this um, but you know the the text I mean we can't be 100% certain because Matthew just refers to them as magi you know he doesn't say these are people that were influenced by Daniel and he doesn't make references to the old Babylonian or Persian Empire he just says they they came from the east um, and then there's a good chance uh, you know there's a good possibility as well that they were not um, they, they were affected by some of those writings. So, you know, as wise men, they would have looked at a lot of writings from a lot of different sages, if you will, a lot of different um, experts. And, and certainly the Jewish writings would have been available from, from that area of Persia because of Daniel's influence. So they, they could have seen that and, um, and recognized that, hey, this is, this is the timing that the, that the one who was going to be born king of the Jews um, would, be, you know, would be born. And clearly, you know, when you look at the passage, God clearly led them there. You know, that, there's no question about that, you know, whether it was direct revelation or whether, whether it was from that influence from Daniel. But that's where the suggestion from Daniel comes up. Um, in the Bible, there's no, there's no explicit statement being, being made that links them to Daniel, but that's really just from historical, um, you know, understanding the geography and, and the history um, of those areas. Matt, um, uh, Pastor West, yeah. One thing you mentioned this morning I had thought about is if they're giving gifts, yeah. usually people give gifts to them. Uh, but you, you kind of wonder when they showed up at this house, and here is this common little couple, yeah, yeah. with a common little baby, right? And they're 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 still having to accept this as being the king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's 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 amazing that you would walk into a house and and see this little kid, maybe at most two years old, and and recognize him as the king, and and, to, and for them to react the way they did, they rejoiced exceedingly with with great joy. And, um, and, you know, the, the funny thing was about that star, you know, initially they, you know, and even the song, the first Noah gets this wrong because the first Noah talks about how the star led them all the way there. Well, no, it didn't. Um, the, the star was in the east. And, and that was just a sign that the, the, the king of the Jews had been born. And so then they knew to go to Jerusalem because that's where, you know, that's where the center of Jewish worship was. Um, but the star didn't really start guiding them until after Herod sent them to Bethlehem, which was really only a five mile journey. So from from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, they, they would have been there in, you know, about an hour, um, if that. So it was, um, it was actually a, quite a short journey. But from coming from wherever they came from the east all the way to Jerusalem, that would have been a long journey. But they, they knew exactly where they were going. They were going straight to Jerusalem. And uh, they, they started asking those questions. Yes? Um, I taught from Matthew this morning to yep. my Sunday school class the same passage. But as I was studying for it, I'm, I'm, I was puzzled because they came to Bethlehem from Nazareth to pay yep. their taxes. Then they went to Jerusalem and then they came back. So when they came back, they never went back to Nazareth. They stayed there for like two years until the because. Oh, you're talking about Jesus and, yeah, and because they were still in Bethlehem. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were still in Bethlehem. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to go back and, back and trace their. And as I'm looking, I'm thinking, hmm, yeah. they never go 
Yeah, that's that's um, that's when they, well after Egypt, I believe that's when they came back to, to really to stay in Galilee. That's yeah, 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 but, yeah. So apparently, after they had the baby, then they got a house and just stayed in Bethlehem and never. Yeah, no, that's that's a good question, and it, it'd be it'd be worth kind of tracing um, where Jesus was yeah. from the time he was born. Because all it says is he was born, and then yeah. he went to, to Jerusalem yeah. to be dedicated. He saw Anna and Simeon, and yeah. then the next thing you know, he's back in Bethlehem right. when the wise men showed up. Yeah, and yeah. So so he was still in Bethlehem, and, it, and um, so I would assume it wasn't until he left for Egypt. Um, you know, God gave that sign to, to go to Egypt and then uh-huh. coming back from Egypt, that's when they, they settled into Galilee. Yeah. Um, and, and that ended up being a stumbling block for the Jews when Jesus started his ministry. We we're like, wait a second. It wasn't the Messiah supposed to come from Bethlehem. This guy's from Galilee. You know, can anything good come from Galilee? Right. You know, kind of come from that uh, that area. So that, that was a stumbling block to them. Um, that's true. I didn't even think because when they left Nazareth, because he was thinking about putting her away, and then he, yeah. but that might have been why they never returned. Yeah. Because of that, I know I, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was um, there was a sense in which Joseph had to kind of hide her. Right. Yeah, and uh, and, and what was happening there? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and so that that's um, you know, so there there's a lot that um, we we assume is true just from the songs that we we sing, and from the stories that are traditionally told. And then when you look closely at the scriptures, well, that, that's, not, that's not quite the case. And what's interesting, though, is that they're just traveling five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and that's when the star reappears and now is guiding them um, directly to the place. And, and I was um, reading one commentary that said, well, they, you know, the star only guided them to Bethlehem, but they had still had to search for the house. And, I was like, and I'm thinking, well, if they had to search for house to house, how would they know which one was the, actually the Messiah? You know, so because because no one knew, you know, no, you know, anyone who was around um, Mary and, and Jesus, they wouldn't have known that that was the Messiah, even if they knew the timing that the Messiah would be born around then. There, there was no, you know, there's no indication that people knew that he was the Messiah aside from, you know, Mary and, and Elizabeth, um, you know, those those two families. And that really would be it. Um, so, yeah. You think the gold, frankincense and myrrh was their finances to Egypt? Yes. That could have been. That could have been. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny when um, when the Israelites and this, you know, there's so many parallels to the Old Testament, right? You look back at um, the Old Testament when uh, when the Israelites, when the Israelites were delivered out of um, Egypt, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, when they left, they left with the riches of the Egyptians. I mean, God even said, you will plunder the Egyptians, you know, so they not only were allowed to leave, but but, um, you know, but they actually were able to take a lot of the gold and 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 uh, and valuables of the egyptians and and what was the purpose the purpose was ultimately when they would build a tabernacle that that a lot of that would go towards the funding um of the tabernacle and so that uh, that ended up sustaining them in in various ways but um yeah that's that's an interesting one because those are valuable substances and and sure certainly that would have been used to to um to, to help sustain them you know especially if you had to leave the country and go to egypt and then come back and you know resettle into a new area and all that yeah absolutely now the um, the uh, the references to, to to kings. There are some songs that talk about how kings will bow down um, to Jesus Christ, and uh, and so sometimes people portray this story as being kings um, as opposed to just uh, wise men. Um, look at um, Psalm seventy two. Psalm seventy two. Psalm 72, a messianic psalm, and uh, when you go down to verse 10, Psalm 72, Psalm 72, and look at uh, verses 10 and 11. Uh, Verses 10 and 11, we have uh, this prophecy 
Um, let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts, and let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. Um, so a lot of people, when they, when they see the, the, the verse from Matthew 2 about the wise men bringing gifts and bowing down, um, so a lot of people say, well, that's clearly a fulfillment of 72 verses 10 and 11. Um, there's a couple of problems with that. Um, one, Matthew never identifies them as kings. They never identified themselves as kings, right? They're just, they're magi. Um, they're magi, they're wise men, um, they're, um, they're, they're wise people that came to worship uh, the, the king, certainly. But it says, let all kings bow down before him, and also all nations serve him. Well, the nations aren't serving Christ yet. I mean, in a sense, you can say they are with the great commission going out. Um, but um, when Jesus Christ returns and sets up his earthly reign, um, then there will be a very clear reign of Jesus Christ here on this earth. Um, for now, we still have the prince of the power of the air who has a certain dominion um, that's allowed by God. Uh, but when Jesus Christ returns, I think that's when we're going to really see kings bowing down to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the nations truly um, serving him. So I think that this prophecy is really uh, more end times when Jesus Christ ultimately returns. Um, but you could look at uh, the, you know, the Magi bowing down as almost like a, like a foretaste, uh, foretaste of that. Uh, but often, um, I, in fact, this morning I thought we were going to, there was a song, uh, originally there was a song in our list, um, the Kings of the Orient uh, or something like that, Bow Down to the, and, and I think that was uh, originally going to be one of the songs that were, were going to be sung this morning and we didn't sing it, um, which uh, I'm actually kind of glad because it's, um, I, it's not accurate, um, at least in terms of, of this account. Yeah. yeah, but George, the world is about a millennium. It's not about Jesus' birth. What's that? George, the world. Yeah. It's about the millennium. It's not about Jesus. Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we sing it every Christmas, but it's not really about Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we have, um, and, and these, this is all example of traditions. This is all example of, of traditions that we have these traditions and we sing these songs and, and, um, and, and we just, uh, we, we kind of accept it over the years that, you know, what we're singing is, is true. Now, there's nothing wrong with singing joy to the world, no. right? I mean, you know, we could we could make very much an argument that for us as Christians, we are looking forward to a time of joy all over the world. You know, when uh, when we hit that eternal state, you know, after Jesus Christ returns or the millennial kingdom um, that that he sets up, there is um, there is great joy that's uh, associated with that. And um, and there's nothing wrong with singing about kings bowing down to Jesus Christ, because we know that that that's going to be true, that things th these things uh, will be fulfilled. Um, but, you know, I, I think when we look at these kinds of passages, and I think it strengthens the fact that there's two returns, right? When we look at this, I mean, all these um, prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ, um, it's, it's what, what, what the Jews didn't understand, and, and rightly so. I mean, if you go through the Old Testament, it's hard to kind of reconcile what's going on. You know, he's going to die, but he's going to rule. You know, how's all this going to work? Um, the, the prophecies, when they're given in the Old Testament, the, the image that um, I want you to imagine is if you're looking at a bunch of mountain peaks from a distance, you look at a bunch of mountain peaks from a distance, and you can't tell which one is closer and which one's further. All you do is see a bunch of mountain peaks. And so prophecies, um, often prophecies are presented in that way, where there's a lot of events, but some of those events are actually further away, and some of those events are closer. Um, and so as we looked at uh, some of these prophecies in the Old Testament, yeah, there is a, a time where all the nations uh, will serve him. And in fact, I read from um, Isaiah 9 um, this morning. In fact, turn, turn to Isaiah 9. Let's take a look at that. Isaiah 9 has a very similar kind of um, future state prophecy about it, um, both mixing both, the, both what has happened and what will happen. I mean, Isaiah 9, verse 6, uh, very well-known uh, verse about, uh, about Jesus Christ. Um, 
And this comes two chapters after, you know, because in Isaiah 7, that's, that's where you have the, the virgin birth being prophesied, right? Um, King Ahaz uh, was, was told to ask for a sign, and then God ended up giving him a sign. And then we get to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Okay, so that, that's clearly talking about the incarnation, about the uh, arrival of Jesus Christ. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Um, but that second line, the government will rest on his shoulders, that hasn't happened yet. Um, you know, this, uh, the, the, yes? What does that mean exactly? I mean, yeah, the government will rest on his shoulders. Well, I think this is, you know, when we think about government, we think about, um, you know, civilization. We think about, uh, you know, kingdoms or, you know, how, how people operate authority, right? Um, so the government will rest on his shoulders really speaks towards his authority, um, that, that he is going to have the, have the authority, right? And then it goes on further, you know, it says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. But then in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government of peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Um, specifically when it says on the throne of David, I do believe that Jesus Christ, when he comes back to establish his millennial kingdom, I believe he will do it from Jerusalem. Um, that, that would be the throne of David. Um, and uh, Psalm 110 kind of makes a, a reference uh, to this as well in a very similar way. But what you see just in these two verses, you see both a mix, uh, a mix of prophecy about the child who will come, but things that will happen that, that are going to be much further away. You know, so what, what we see here is that, um, and then it makes sense when you think about it, because if there was only one coming, I mentioned it this morning, but if Jesus Christ had only one coming and he ended up reigning and ruling right away, there'd be no salvation for us. Um, so when we work backwards with that kind of mindset that there's no salvation if all he does is set up his government and his authority and his kingdom and whatnot, that there's no salvation for anyone. Um, when you think of it that way, then you realize that, yeah, something else had to happen. Um, something else has to happen before then in order for him to have a kingdom of people that would be with him forever into eternity. Right. And, and that's really that he had to come and die um, for for those who would end up. Um, being in his kingdom. And then I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Matthew 5. Look at Matthew 5. And really the book of Matthew um, places a lot of emphasis upon the kingdom, upon the kingdom of God. You, you see it uh, repeated over and over again. In fact, Matthew rarely calls it the kingdom of God. He usually calls it the kingdom of heaven. And, and the reason why he does that is, um, is because the Jews were very sensitive about using God's name about using the word God um, or Yahweh. Um, so he would often just replace it with, with heaven, but they knew what he was talking about when he said kingdom of heaven. He's really referring to kingdom of God. And, uh, and when you look at this, um, this Sermon on the Mount, and, and this is the longest recorded, recorded sermon from Jesus Christ in the uh, New Testament. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountains, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. And look what he says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. It's very, it's very telling that the very first statement he talks about is who is going to um, be a part of the kingdom of heaven. See, because if you were Jewish, you thought that just your Jewish heritage itself was enough to ensure that you will be in the future kingdom for eternity with Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ really lays out here, what we call the Beatitudes, these are the characteristics of those who will actually inhabit the kingdom of heaven. And so this, um, from the very beginning, would have been a shock to his Jewish hearers um, because they're thinking, well, the, those who inherit the kingdom of heaven is obviously going to be the, the nation of Israel. And, and uh, Jesus doesn't make it that cut and dry. He says, no, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are gentle. And, and now by 
providing us these these kinds of characteristics uh, you know it's kind of a foretaste that no it's not it's not going to be just Jews but it's going to be people with the right kind of um, attitudes the right kind of characteristics that's going to be made possible by you know the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit um, so you know the the kingdom as as Jesus is presenting here he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount really starts off with the premise of who it is that's going to inherit um, this uh, this kingdom so when we think about the kingdom that Jesus is going to reign over um, the, the kingdom would be um, much less of a kingdom if all of his subjects were being condemned for eternity in the lake of fire. You know, but Jesus Christ would come and die for them first. And, and so now that those who are in his kingdom, we, we serve him. He is our Lord. He is our brother. He's our savior. He's our priest. He's all those things. And, um, and the, the blessing is that we serve him knowing that um, we have something greater to look forward to, not something to fear um, in the future. Right. Um, so Jesus Christ, as he was resurrected, gave us the promise that we will receive glorified bodies. And so there, there's this idea of, you know, for the kingdom to be really everlasting, for it to be eternal, um, it, um, it brings glory to God that it's people who are saved by the grace and mercy of God to be with him for eternity. So I think even when, when you think through um, just the implications of that kingdom, it starts to make more sense why there had to be two comings. You know, and why these uh, these prophecies, um, you know, why these prophecies were the way they were. Let me see what else. Um, any other uh, observations from this morning? You know, and there's a lot of um, parallels in terms of you know the kind of message that that came out this morning. Look at Psalm two. Because when we think about King Herod. What did King Herod ultimately try to do? Um, what did he want to do to baby Jesus? Yeah, he wanted to kill him. You know, he ended up massacring um, everyone the ages of two and under. You know, by the way, when we think about it, um, a lot of people that um, criticize our faith, you know, will say, well, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? And uh, when they say that, they, they automatically presume that the, the Bible paints a rosy picture uh, of what life should be on this earth. I mean, there is a presumption in that statement that if God is so good, why is there evil in this world? They, there's a presumption that the Bible doesn't address that. But even in the, you know, when we look at the, um, you know, that, that narrative of the wise men, um, what we see is that Jesus Christ was spared uh, from a lot of innocent children being butchered, right? You know, even in that account, um, God spared Jesus Christ uh, from, the, from the sinful murder that um, Herod would commit upon all children to and under um, in the area of, Bethlehem and, and the surrounding areas, you know, so I mean, even the Bible makes, you know, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat evil that's in the world. And we know that evil's in the world as a result of these sinful desires and, and, and uh, the, you know, the sin of mankind, and especially those uh, in power, like people like Herod. But when we get to Psalm 2, Psalm 2, you, you can say in many ways, is talking about people like Herod, because it starts off in verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. I mean, that's really what King Herod was trying to do. You know, he understood the prophecy of the, the, the coming Messiah, and he wanted to do everything he could to, to stop it from, from taking place. You know, and so he, he could be very much presented here as the one who is, who is uh, you know, standing against God. Uh, but then when you go further down, verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And the last uh, three verses, Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. And verse 11, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And verse 12, you, you can get the entire gospel out of this one verse. Verse 12. Do homage. Okay, do homage. That's the same idea as kind of worship. Sometimes Some translations have kiss. Kiss the son. Do homage to the son. Worship the son. Um, and verse 12, I love it. It says, do homage to the son. Why? That he not become angry. And this is very interesting because God, throughout the Old Testament, he tells you to fear him. He, it's his wrath and fury that you need to worry about. But this is one of the few times that I can think of where the Lord God is saying to fear someone else saying, fear him, fear my son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And then that final line, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so what that verse 12 shows that either you're taking refuge in him, you know, or you're going to be the object of his wrath. You know, you're either with Christ or you're against Christ. You know, you're, you're one or the other. And so right in that very verse, God is also warning that this son, um, th this Messiah, is the one that's going to bring judgment. He's the one that's, uh, that, that's going to, to bring that war. He's the one that's going to um, <coughs> punish uh, those who do not take homage in him. You know, so there, right there you've got the gospel that the only way to be protected from the wrath of God, from the wrath of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to put your trust into him in terms of what he did in his first coming. And one more psalm, Psalm 110. Psalm 110, um, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we, that verse right there, that's um, one of the most quoted verses in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Um, in fact, amongst the Psalms, there's no verse that's quoted more than that verse right there. Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this would have been after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about him ascending into heaven. But we're talking about the full exaltation of him to the right hand of God the Father, where he is ascending not simply just to heaven, but he is ascending in terms of his authority and rulership, where he is now the, the ruler over all of um, all of creation. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And verse two, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. So what, what, uh, what we get from verse one, first, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, but he's not going to be there forever. Sit at my right hand until, until what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that's, that's implying a second coming. When, the, when he makes an enemy a footstool for your feet, he's going to return. And verse 2 is where he says, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Zion um, being the Temple Mount, that being Jerusalem. Um, so that's, uh, that's where I believe the throne of David um, that we often see being referred to. Uh, he's going to return to Jerusalem and, and rule from, from, uh, from the throne of David. And it says, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then from verses, go down to verse 5, 6, and 7. This is the judgment that he's going to bring. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge amongst the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this, um, this messianic psalm 
um, ends with um, his judgment, but also his victory, um, his judgment and as well as his victory. And in fact, um, I, I mentioned this when I preached through this uh, psalm when I first got here, but the end of verse six, when it says, he will shatter the chief men over a broad country. In the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it literally, it says he will shatter the head. He will shatter the head over a broad country. Now, when we think the head, well, what's, what's the head? Well, the head uh, for Jews, well, what do you guys think? Well, what is the head referring to? When you hear he will shatter the head. Think of Genesis. What's that? The head of the serpent. Yeah, the head of the serpent. So I actually believe, I mean, the head could be translated as chief men, um, but there are many who believe that this is talking about his ultimate victory over Satan. You know, that um, because when when Jesus, when um, God was speaking to Adam and Eve, it's Genesis 3.15, I want to say. Let me double check that. 3.15. Genesis 3.15, he tells, um, tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Um, so that uh, that psalm that, talking about the. Um, that the second coming of Jesus Christ um, is going to bring judgment, but he's also going to bring that ultimate victory um, over Satan. And then that last verse of Psalm 110. That last verse of Psalm 110, he will drink by the brook, uh, from the brook by the wayside. Um, this is the idea that the, that the battle is over. You know, I mean, after, after the battle is over, you go and, and refresh yourself. Um, he will drink um, from the brook by the wayside, and therefore he will lift up his head. Um, victors, I mean, this is kind of a universal thing all over the world. If you, if you lose a battle, you hang your head. Um, and, and those who are victorious, you, you, you lift up your head. Um, so this is, uh, th this is just the, you know, showing his, his victory that, that he's going to have when he comes back. And uh, in fact... Um, in January, I've, I've been, I'm going to attend the, this um, Carb C uh, workers retreat, pastoral retreat um, um, up north. And uh, they've asked me to, uh, they've asked me to preach one of the messages. And so um, they've got um, the, the set of messages on the faithfulness of God. And so they, they gave me options between one of four different messages. And, and the last of the four was the, the faithfulness in his return from Revelation 19. And I saw that. I said, that's the one I'm going to do. And to turn with me to Revelation 19. You know, it's funny when um, when Jesus Christ, when he came into Jerusalem the last time to, to be crucified, um, he, he came in and and, to, you know, everyone was shouting out Hosanna. Right. And we often refer to that as the triumphal entry. Right. When he's coming in on, on a colt, on a donkey, that's his triumphal entry. That was not his triumphal entry. Revelation 19 is his triumphal entry. OK, this is his real triumphal entry. I mean, ultimately, this is where he's going to triumph. Revelation 19, verse 11 this is the prophecy from the Apostle John, and he says, I saw, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress with the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. 
And that, that gives me goosebumps just reading that. Um, that's his triumphal entry. I mean, when he comes in on, on the white horse and uh, he's coming to wage war and he's coming to bring ultimate victory. Um, the first time he came and he submitted himself to crucifixion, he submitted himself to, to death. You know, and he kept his mouth silent. He, he, he was like a sheep led to slaughter, right? I mean, he was fulfilling Isaiah 53. Um, so ultimately, when we go back to the Old Testament and we see these prophecies about how kings will bow down to him, recognize there, there's a much bigger and much more final picture to that that's coming. You know, and, and that's um, the, the fact that Jesus Christ even came and fulfilled the prophecies that he did should give us confidence that the rest of the prophecies will absolutely be fulfilled. You know, I mean, Satan did everything he could to stop the crucifixion. Satan did everything he could to, to stop Jesus Christ in his first mission. You know, and, and think about all that has happened to Israel over the years. I mean, Israel's disobedience, being sent into exile, you know, and, uh, and a lot of people were wondering, well, you know, what's, what's going to happen to Israel? They haven't fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant. There's this promised king of David that, that um, hasn't, hasn't come. And, uh, you know, and there's, there's judgment even upon that household. And, you know, and, and God has been sovereign um, over that. And even in spite of all that has happened throughout human history, we see, it, see that God was totally sovereign to ultimately bring his son and to die on the cross for us and to achieve salvation for us the first time. And that should give us absolute confidence that there is no question that his second coming cannot be stopped as well. And the events and the outcome of his, of his second coming um, are undeniable. You know, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of having a Bible that has been written over a long period of time. You know, I mentioned this morning, there is not, a, there is not another religious text that you can go to where there are predictions being made and then it happens and then they can document those, those things being fulfilled, those things happening. The, the prophecies of Jesus Christ um, that were um, supposed to have already occurred have occurred. And the ones that still have yet to occur, we know will occur. You know, and uh, someone has done, you know, I remember someone doing the odds. What are the odds that someone would have fulfilled all the prophecies uh, of Jesus Christ that were written in the scriptures? And it's like, I don't know, one out of a billion or something like that. It's, it's like some ridiculous number that, uh, that, the, that the odds are incredibly long. Um, you know, and, and even for the Jew who's expecting the Messiah to still come, you know, a lot of the conditions um, don't even exist anymore for, for the, the Messiah to, to, to come in his first coming today. So it all points to, to Jesus Christ. But the fact that it all was fulfilled in Jesus Christ should give us absolute confidence that everything that we see that will happen in the future will happen. And so Revelation, you know, Revelation starts off with blessed is the man who reads this book and understands it. Um, Revelation is a hard book to understand. Okay, that's we know that. You know, there's so many different ways that, that people have interpreted this. But there's one thing clear about Revelation. No matter, you know, no, no matter how much you understand, no matter how much you disagree with others, one thing is very clear that there is victory at the end. You know, that there is an eternal state at the end. You know, and that there's going to be a time where we're going to be in heaven with God. You know, all of our sins are, are, are you know, we're no longer dealing with our sinful bodies. All of our sorrows are wiped away. Um, we're going to be living in bliss uh, with our creator. Um, that much is very clear. And we can take comfort and hope in that, you know, no matter how hard and difficult things get today. You know, and, and when, people, when people imply that be, being a Christian is supposed to make your life better, well, it does make it better from a spiritual perspective. It should, absolutely. You know, it should make you stronger. It should make you more hopeful. It should make you more joyful. But it should be a, a joy that comes supernaturally, you know, um, because of the hope that you have in the future and not necessarily because you expect circumstances today to improve. You know, that was the whole point of Jesus Christ, you know, when he was talking to the disciples, saying, if the world hated you, what? Know that it what? Yeah, hated me first. 
You know, that, that whole upper room um, message from Jesus Christ to his disciples was to warn them that the things that happen to me are going to happen to you. You know, but, but take heart. You have the Holy Spirit. You will be able to endure. And we, too, we have the Holy Spirit. We will be able to endure. Amen. Yeah. And so we, we see that, uh, that attack around us. Um, and it's closing in. It's, it's getting worse and worse. But the thing is, too, in this nation, we don't know how good we have it. I mean, we... Compared to other nations, compared to other countries, like when we've been overseas and we've had to be underground, um, you know, when I've been underground preaching and teaching and even places where Brett and Gail go to Myanmar and they see the conditions out there and just how careful they have to be in terms, you know, of their ministry. I mean, we, we really take it for granted here. And uh, I was talking to someone uh, this morning who served overseas uh, during the first Operation Desert Storm. And, uh, and he said he saw firsthand um, all the reasons why we should feel blessed every Sunday to be able to worship the Lord. You know, because in other parts of the world, it can cost you your life. In other parts of the world, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a lot more difficult. You know, so what, what a blessing we have to be able to come together and, and just be able to worship the Lord. And, and then for, you know, for a lot of us, when we start to make excuses, we, we don't have the bigger picture in mind. We don't understand just uh, how much of a privilege uh, we have there. So I've gone on off on a little tangent. Any other um, thoughts uh, from from this morning? Any other anything that um, that that you had questions about that arose as we were going through this? Let me see what other uh, what other items came up. Here here's a question for you: astrology. So the Magi saw the star in the east, and that's what told them that the king of the Jews was born. And then they followed a star to the house where the uh, Messiah was. Um, does that um, does that affirm astrology as something that we as Christians uh, should pursue as part of our spiritual growth? Sounds like a trick question. There's, there's a difference between astronomy and astrology, right? Yeah, yeah. So astronomy, yeah, that's that's true. So astronomy, a study of space, um, you know, celestial bodies. Astrology is, um, you know, I think of almost like horoscopes, right? Yeah. Um, can get a little mystical, right? And so people will say that and say, see, um, you know, God affirms um, astrology. <laughs> you would say he affirms astronomy. <laughs> how, how, would you, how, how would you respond to that? Yeah, he, no, he doesn't. Um, and, and really, you, you can say that, um, you know, Matthew just points out what happened, but there's nowhere else in the book where we're told we need that. Um, so I've... Um, there was a church in, I think it was Atlanta, Georgia, um, just this past year, that um, hired a medium um, onto their church staff, a medium who supposedly speaks to dead bodies, to dead, dead spirits. And, uh, and, and it was on, you know, they made this announcement saying that this is, this is a wonderful addition to our staff and it's going to be a, a wonderful help to, you know, our church members who, who really want to hear from their relatives and whatnot. And, and I looked at that and, I, and I, just, I just shivered, right? I mean, it's like, where in the Bible does it, t- I mean, in fact, then the Bible, the Bible actually condemns the use of mediums. Um, you know, why do you need someone who can speak to the dead when you have the living word of God from, from God himself? You know, why do you want to hear the words from those who have passed away when you can hear the words from our creator, you know, from, from our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, so there, there's a lot of um, churches, though, that, that, that think it's okay to start dabbling in some of these, these other fields. And then just like the, all the debate that surrounds the nature of this star, you know, was it, uh, was it the alignment of, of Jupiter and Saturn um, from a distance? Was it a shooting star? Was it a comet? Uh, what, was it any one of those things, a, a supernova and whatnot? Well, we just, um, we just don't have enough information. 
And, um, and getting the answer to that, we might find the natural answer to that. Uh, but I would say spiritually, we already have everything that we need for life and godliness already supplied to us in the Bible. So, so this is where we want to exercise discernment and, and recognize where, where something is just, you know, if it was really crucial, God would have made it more clear to us. You know, but the fact that these are just passing details in the narrative. I think we need to recognize, too, though, that Scripture reflects the culture in which it was written. Yeah. The book of Job has the line, uh, can you bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades? Uh, implying that um, heavenly bodies have some sort of um, mystical influence. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the book of Job. Yeah. It, it's um, a wisdom book of the Old Testament. And it doesn't mean that it was necessarily true. Right. It just reflects um, the culture of the day and yeah. the beliefs of the people. Yeah. Um, certainly astrologers were believed Yeah, and we, we do want to balance that. Um, you know, and in one sense, we want to say that there is a reflection of the culture of that age, but it doesn't mean that... Um, that, that, it's, that, that the principles that come out of Scripture are culturally driven, right? So, I mean, the things that happen when we read narrative accounts, it does reflect um, what's going on at that time. And a couple of examples. Um, one is um, the, the false prophet Balaam, right? When you read through the Old Testament, um, as, as Israel's coming out of Egypt, you, you hear about this false prophet Balaam who had been hired by King, uh, I think it was Balak, who wanted Balaam to curse Israel, right? And um, what happened, God ended up taking control of his mouth and actually blessing Israel. Well, later, Balaam went wayward and ended up getting killed uh, by the Israelites. Um, but that's an example of a, of a false prophet af- actually being used by God to actually provide a true prophecy of God. Or when, um, if you look at uh, Acts chapter 16, look, look at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and th- this is a fascinating account. Um, uh, one of these days I'll, I'll preach this. I, I've preached this before in other places. Um, fascinating historical details that are going on here. But when you go to um, verse 16, Acts chapter 16, verse 16. Acts 16, verse 16. It says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. That spirit of divination, if you know the Greek, it, it literally names the spirit. It doesn't just say spirit of divination. It says python spirit. Python spirit. What's a python spirit? Well, the word python, which we associate with large snakes, um, originally came from Greek mythology. Um, it, it was referring to, uh, to, to this kind of serpent or, or dragon god um, that made an attack on, um, on, on the, the temple of Apollos. Um, and uh, it's uh, located, uh, the, that temple is located, I think, in... Um, Oh, what's the what's the name of that place? Um, the, the the place escapes me, but you would recognize the the name of the place if I, I mentioned it. Um, but it made an attack and was defeated by Apollos, and then and then that Python spirit ended up becoming a benevolent spirit that provided fortune telling capabilities. And so people would travel all over the world to to um, well, all over the Mediterranean to this one temple um, in, in order to receive um, basically you know get fortune tellings. 
um, from this spirit. And so this spirit was actually inhabiting this girl, this, this python spirit. And, um, and, and we often look at them and say, well, she's demon-possessed, and absolutely she was demon-possessed, but there's a difference here. There's a reason why Paul didn't want to just cast her out immediately. You know, normally, you know, when we see stories of demon-possessed people, you know, Jesus or, or the apostles, one of them would just cast them out. In this case, he didn't because this spirit was seen by everyone else as being a benevolent spirit. You know, they actually went to her, you know, to, to, to be able to get their, their fortunes told back to them. That's why it says that uh, she brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This was a popular girl. You know, they, they didn't have to travel all the way to this temple of Apollos. They can go just to this girl and, and get the same kind of uh, fortune-telling from her. Um, but, you know, obviously this spirit within her, which we know would be a demon, verse 17, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out saying, these are bondservants of the most high God um, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And by the way, that word for bondservants is the word slave. These are slaves of the most high God. And Paul would often refer to himself literally as a slave of God, even though it's translated as bondservant. He literally refers to himself as a slave of God. These men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of <coughs> salvation. Now, this is a demon spirit, and when you look at that statement, is there any part of that statement that's false? No, that's actually a true statement. You know, that, that girl is actually proclaiming a very true statement. And verse 18, she continued doing this for many days, and, and we think about when Paul finally cast it out of her, it wasn't because he recognized that it was, she, this was a demon-possessed girl. It was because in verse 18 it says, but Paul was greatly annoyed. He got greatly annoyed and then finally turned around and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. I, I'm sure that Paul knew all along that this was a demon-possessed girl, but he wanted to do the work of the gospel and let the gospel um, do its work. You know, but the, this girl just kept following him, kept making these proclamations. And while the proclamations were true, because this girl was so popular, she was actually drawing attention away from the ministry of, of Paul and his apostolic team, you know, as he's trying to do the work of the gospel. And so that's why he turns around. He's greatly annoyed. And that's, that's ultimately the reason why he casts out that girl. But, you know, by the sovereignty of God, God made sure that this girl would annoy him so that he would turn around, cast it out, and end up getting thrown into, into prison. Um, and, uh, and, and that would ultimately lead to, you know, in prison, that's when the earthquake strikes, the doors open, but Paul doesn't leave. And he stays, and then he ends up bringing salvation to that jailer as well as the jailer's family. And that was the introduction of the gospel into the city of Philippi. You know, so those Philippians, when they look back, they remember the sacrifice that Paul made um, in that city in order to bring them salvation. Um, so that's, uh, you know, it's a, w a wonderful, uh, wonderful story. But this is an example of where um, God can use sources that would not be recommended in order to actually bring truth you know he can he can use he can use this uh, this this girl with this python spirit he can use balaam as a false prophet you know he can use somehow use the stars for these who are studying the skies um to to be able to say that hey the the, the messiah has been born um but that doesn't mean that uh, that we go and pursue those things rather when we look at you know, the epistles, when we look at all the letters that, that the apostles wrote and the disciples wrote, as well as the statements of Jesus, what we are to pursue is the word of God. What we are to pursue and chew on and understand is, is the word of God. And that will not let us down. You know, but a lot of people that go off on these tangents trying to, you know, and science is another thing. So, I mean, a lot of people who believe the Bible will spend a lot more time in science trying to prove the Bible with science. You know, and so they try to defend the Bible that, you know, these are um, apologists um, who go out and, and they, they do all this study of scientific facts and data. And they provide a wonderful service. 
you know, because there, there is actually a lot of scientific data that backs up the things that we see in the scriptures. Um, but ultimately, the study of scientific data is not even what we're told to pursue. It's just knowing scripture. If people think we're fools for believing scripture, then that's okay, because people thought that Jesus Christ was a fool. People thought were, that his followers were, were fools. Um, but we have... Um, we know that, uh, that Jesus Christ um, was real. He's a historical figure. We know who he was, and what he know, we know how he will be identified when he comes back. You know, he, he will be the King of kings and the Lord of hosts. So that's, um, yeah, that, so t- to your point, um, there's, there's a cultural element that we see in narratives often um, that we have to be careful that um, narratives, and when I say narratives, um, the book of Acts, um, when you read a lot of the gospel accounts, a lot of the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament is narrative, not all of it, but most of it is. When you read narratives, recognize that you're seeing a description of what happened, not a prescription of what we're supposed to do. So it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Right? It's, it's not necessarily what we see here is, is telling us that's what we have to do. It's just telling us what happened. So obviously with Abraham, Abraham and his wife, when he went into a you know, city, he, he lied about his, his wife, right? Said, this is my sister. And he did that twice. Yes. And then his son did that, right? I mean, so, I mean, they, they, you know, they, they did that multiple times. And we know Abraham was a man of God. We know that Isaac was a man of God. And so someone might look at that and say, see, it's okay to lie. No, that's, it's describing what happened. It's not prescribing how you should behave. That's the grace of God upon them. And just like David, obviously his trespasses, we wouldn't take that as prescriptive for how we should live or what we should do. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're actually, wow, it's almost uh, 7 o'clock. Yes, Jerry. Well, I just have a quick question. I've, yeah. heard, I've heard some people say that when they went to the house, it was actually the Shekinah glory that was in the house. Yeah, I, that, that's, um, that is one of the positions with regards to the star, that the star was really providing light, a Shekinah glory kind of light. And um, that could be. I mean, that's, that's one of those possibilities. And I, I certainly can't rule it out. Mm-hmm. But I also can't definitively say that's what it is because, yeah, because Matthew doesn't say. Matthew doesn't say. Now, Luke, when Luke talks about the shepherds in the field, Luke does mention the glory of God surrounding them. You know, in that case, you can say that was the glory of God. Yeah. Right, right. The Shekinah glory. Right, right. So, I mean, um, there are there are people that will say that that star was really kind of the Shekinah glory. Maybe it was. Um, it's just, you know, we can't we can't go beyond. I can't go beyond what Matthew said. It's just we just know that it appeared to them as a star. Um, and uh, and then guided them to that house, but you know there theologically there's um, there would be nothing theologically wrong with it actually being the glory of God. Have right. you ever done a message on the um, Rachel's weeping? Rachel's weeping. Rachel's weeping. No. Well, what is that about? Well, I guess uh, apparently there's three different times that she wept, but the, I guess the third time was at this period of time where all these babies were being killed. Oh, and then she, no, wept, she wept over her child Joseph, and then she wept when they went into captivity. There's a mention, and there's also a mention about how these all because I guess the, the Jewish women all wanted to give birth to the Messiah, yeah. you know, that was kind of their dream or something. They yeah. say, and then, but anyway, it's in, uh, it's in Matthew chapter 2. I will. I will take a look at that. No, I haven't. Um, I have not done anything on on Rachel's weeping. I would have to. Yeah, I would have to take a look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's uh, that's when the children were being slaughtered, and that prophecy that it was the Old Testament was being quoted about how there's a great cry. Right. Yeah. And I know what you're talking about, but no, I haven't haven't done a message on that. But I'd I'd have to take a look at that. Um, one more um, verse I want to take you to. Look at uh, Numbers. Give me a second here. 
Numbers 24, verse 17. Numbers 24, verse 17. So in trying to explain that star that the Magi saw, a lot of people will go to Numbers 24, 17 and say that this is a fulfillment of Numbers 24, 17. So let's take a look at that. Numbers 24, 17, this is actually, um, I believe, a, a prophecy that came from Balaam. Um, yeah, so Balaam, um, again, a false prophet, but God was using him at this time to actually bring forth um, prophetic truth. Um, in Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheth. Um, so that right here, a star shall come forth from Jacob. A lot of people will say, well, this was what the, um, you know, what the uh, Magi was looking for, you know, based upon Numbers 24, 17. The, the problem, the problem with that view is that um, that, star, that, that star and in the next line, the scepter is being used um, um, metaphorically to actually refer to Jesus himself. So the star is not the sign. The star is actually the Messiah himself. The, a star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. That's actually a reference to the Messiah himself, not, not the signs that, that, will, that will take place to, um, to, to note when he will come. So that, that is often referenced. And, you know, and possibly maybe the Magi looked at this and they misunderstood it and they were looking for a sign in the, um, in the sky, think that it would be a star. I don't know, maybe. I, we don't know that for sure. Yeah. Old Testament scripture does foretell. I mean, how do they know to look for a star? Which scripture? Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't believe you can find a scripture that that talks about the star. I think the fact that they the fact that they dabbled with astrology or astronomy, either one, the fact that they dabbled with that and and combined with their understanding that the Jewish Messiah would come at this time. You know, maybe in their belief, their their belief in astrology, they thought that there would be a sign in the stars that would coordinate with the time that the Messiah would come. And, and you know, by God, by his sovereign and sovereignty and his, his grace, he actually used that. He actually used that to, to bring the wise men. But I, I wouldn't point to any um, prophecy that I know of from the Old Testament that said that there would be a star in the sky to denote this. You know, but if, if there were, this is the closest thing to it. This is what people normally point to is Numbers twenty four seventeen. But yeah, I mean, there's um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of interesting debates and discussions that surround this, and and what what it can do. I mean, when we look at that passage of the wise men, it, it um, you know we, again it, it, these are potential rabbit trails that can take our eyes off the big picture. Okay, the big picture was this: God brought people who were not Jews into Jewish territory in order to worship the one who was born King of the Jews. They knew, yeah, and this was, and there's a contrast here because remember, as Jesus Christ starts his ministry, I mean, there is almost immediate conflict between him and the Jewish leaders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by the time he is crucified, I mean, you know, the people were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, right? And, and even his disciples had scattered by the time he was crucified. And really, the popularity, the, the growth of Christianity didn't start until the day of Pentecost, you know, with the opening sermon from Peter on that day of Pentecost. And, and so what we see is just, broad-scale rejection, you know, of the Messiah. Uh, we see this broad-scale rejection of, of who he is. And so there, there's this um, contrast when we look at that scene of the wise men that the Jews rejected him. And John even wrote that in John chapter 1, right? He came to his own people, but they did not accept him. You know, um, but the, the Jews rejected him. And here you have people who are not Jews coming to worship him. You know, there, there's, there's a contrast there that Matthew is de deliberately trying to put in front of us to show. And Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. You know, uh, the Gospels each are addressed to different audiences. We know Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. How do we know that? Because it has more Old Testament prophecies than any of the other four books. 
and the Old Testament prophecies are, are not necessarily explained. It's assumed that the audience understands what he means. You know, and, and you can only do that if you're writing to a Jewish audience. So he was actually writing to a Jewish audience to make the case that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is the king that we've been waiting for. That's his primary argument in that book. Whereas if you go to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is making the primary argument that Jesus Christ is God. Um, here, Matthew is making the primary argument that this is uh, the king. And, uh, and here he is. And then even Matthew, we have statements in uh, Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus Christ tells the disciples, do not go to the Gentiles. Focus first on the, the, the sheep in Israel. You know, so they, they did their ministry to the Israelites first. But Matthew here is showing that even from the beginning, there was always a plan of God to go out to the rest of the nations. You know, there, there was always a plan that God would not only be just king of the Jews, but he would be king of those who are Gentiles as well. So that had always uh, been in the plan. But, you know, Israel was supposed to be that messenger. Israel was supposed to be the nation of priests. You know, that, that comes from uh, Exodus 19. Look at Exodus 19. Exodus 19, and this is one chapter before they received the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments would be symbolic of really the entire Mosaic Law. They would proceed to receive um, a lot of other commandments through the Mosaic Law. But Exodus uh, 19, um, starting in, let's see, verse 4, this is God speaking to Moses. He's telling Moses, tell this to the people. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So this, when he says, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is the covenant that he's about to bring. That's the Mosaic covenant. And verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, we, we know that within Israel, they, they were broken out into 12 tribes, and there was a Levite tribe that served as priests in the temple. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about them being a kingdom, a full kingdom of priests. The idea that all of Israel would be spokespeople of God to the rest of the world. That that was really God's intended purpose, um, that, that they would be representatives of God to the rest of the world. But they failed. Why did they fail? Because they, they, they failed to even worship God to begin with. And instead, they, they turn to false idols. And um, Peter would end up quoting um, this verse in 1 Peter 2. Um, 1 Peter 2, verses uh, 9 and 10. Uh, Peter says this, and you can just listen. Um, he says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so that the whole reason is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So while God had originally called the Israelites to be his spokesperson, to be his representatives, um, now what God is doing, he's making the Jews jealous by using Gentiles to achieve that same purpose. And Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, talk about how you know, God will bring, bring Israel back into the fold. Uh, but for the time being, he's using the Gentiles in order to make them jealous because the Gentiles are doing what the Jews were called to do from the Old Testament, and they didn't do it. But now we're doing it, and we're doing it through the Great Commission. Yeah. Any other comments or questions before I close this out? All right. Okay, well, hopefully this was a, a good discussion. Um, just, you know, whenever we, we talk about the coming of Jesus Christ and, and these uh, common Christmas accounts, you know, I want to be sure that um, people that read this are not missing the big picture, are not missing the main point that's being pushed forward um, through these narratives. And, and it's, a, it's a powerful message if you, um, if you see it uh, in the intent that it was written. So let's go ahead and close out in prayer.